welcome to the United States and the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, Historical Perspectives, brought to you by the History Department and the College of Arts and Sciences at The Ohio State University, and the magazine, Origins, Current Events, and Historical Perspective. My name is Nick Breifogel. I'm an Associate Professor of History and Director of the Goldberg Center for Excellence in Teaching, and I'll be your host and moderator today. Welcome to everyone, and thank you for joining us. Conflict has defined Arab-Israeli relationships for many decades, with the interstate warfare of the 1940s to 1980s giving way in the 1990s and after to a roiling, to a roiling confrontation between the state of Israel and the Palestinian people of the Israeli-occupied territories. Since the 1940s, the United States has striven to contain, manage, or resolve the conflict, with some notable successes and numerous pronounced failures. While not without precedent, the crisis that erupted on October 7th, 2023, marks an especially difficult, deadly, and portentous phase of conflict, and thus poses acute policy dilemmas for U.S. officials who seek to achieve stability and peace in the region. Today, Professor Peter Elhan will analyze the complicated situation in Gaza in its historical and contemporary contexts, focusing on the American role and aiming to bring clarity and balanced perspective about this difficult and dangerous moment in the Middle East. Let's take a moment to get to know our speaker. Dr. Peter Elhan is an accomplished research scholar who has published seven books on the history of American diplomacy in the Middle East. Most recently, Missions Accomplished, the United States and Iraq since World War I, and the Historical Dictionary of U.S.-Middle East Relations, as well as scores of articles, essays, and reviews. Professor Hahn has conducted research in the archives of the United States, Israel, Britain, and France, delivered scholarly papers and invited lectures in 11 countries, consulted with policymakers in the U.S. Departments of State, Defense, and Justice, and with senior officers of the Ohio National Guard, and given interviews to the media on five continents. From 2002 to 2015, Professor Hahn served as Executive Director of the Society for Historians of American Foreign Relations, or Schaefer, a professional society of some 1,400 members residing in 44 countries. He was elected by the membership to be President of Schaefer in 2018, and in 2010, Ohio Governor Ted Strickland appointed Professor Hahn to a five-year term on the State of Ohio's War of 1812 Bicentennial Commission. Professor Hahn has advised more than three dozen doctoral dissertations in U.S. foreign relations history, taught thousands of undergraduates uh, on the history of U.S. foreign relations and modern U.S. history, and he helped to launch the flagship undergraduate study abroad program at Ohio State on World War II and its impact on the modern world. With that introduction, let me mention the plan. Professor Hahn will open with a presentation on U.S. diplomacy and the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And then he'll take your questions and we'll open things up for discussion. If you are interested in asking a question, please write it in the Q&A function that you'll find at the bottom of your screen. We'll do our best to answer as many questions as we can. We receive multiple questions in advance and we'll start with those. As a reminder, this event will be recorded uh, to be posted at a later date on YouTube and will be made available to everyone who has registered for the webinar. 
Also, we'd like to take a moment to acknowledge that the land the Ohio State University occupies is the ancestral and contemporary territory of the Shawnee, Potawatomi, Delaware, Miami, Peoria, Seneca, Wyandotte, Ojibwe, and Cherokee peoples. Specifically, the university resides on land ceded in the 1795 Treaty of Greenville and the forced removal of tribes through the Indian Removal Act of 1830. We want to honor the resiliency of these tribal nations and recognize the historical context that have and continue to affect the indigenous peoples of this land. Now, let me pass you over to Professor Peter Hahn. Over to you, Peter. Thank you, Nick, for that kind introduction and for the invitation to address this webinar this afternoon. I'm honored and pleased to speak on the topic of the U.S. and the Palestinian-Israeli conflict in historical perspective. I am going to follow uh, the outline that is now projected on the screen, namely a five-part presentation beginning with the origins of the conflict before 1948 followed by a discussion of the Arab-Israeli interstate wars of the 1940s through the 1980s, and then the peace process of the 70s through the 90s, the descent into severe Israeli-Palestinian violence in the early 2000s, culminating with a discussion on the events of October 7th and what has transpired since, and what seems likely or desirable to transpire in the future. Topic one, the origins of the conflict itself. Uh, the struggle over Palestine goes back to the late 19th century when Jewish Europeans who were fleeing persecution in their home countries settled in Ottoman Palestine and native Palestinian people uh, began to resist their presence. Such tensions between two communities heated up into civil violence during the British mandate period of 1920 to 1948 when both communities contested each other, as well as British administrative authority. Weakened by World War II, Britain referred Palestine to the United Nations in 1946, and the UN settled on a partition plan in 1947 to take effect in 1948. Israel declared its independence over the lands assigned to it by the United Nations. The Palestinian people declined the opportunity to do the same. The armed quarrel within Palestine became an international war as five neighboring Arab states invaded intent on destroying Israel in its infancy. Israel triumphed militarily in that war of 1948-49, occupying territory beyond the original partition lines, as these maps indicate. Jordan occupied the West Bank and Egypt occupied the Gaza Strip at the conclusion of those hostilities. Palestinians, the Palestinian people called the 1948-1949 war al-Nakba, meaning the catastrophe, because the process of partition displaced some 750,000 Palestinian people from their homes. Some of those Palestinians chose to leave Israel while many were deliberately expelled by Jewish militias or the new Israeli government attacking their villages, forcing them to flee to UN camps in the Jordan-occupied West Bank 
or Egypt-occupied Gaza, or even beyond. Topic two, the Arab-Israeli War. The era of Arab-Israeli wars from 1948 to the 1980s. During these early decades of the Cold War, there were a series of five formal international conflicts between Israel and its Arab neighbors. Listed here on the screen, they indicate which power initiated the formal hostilities. Uh, that power or powers are listed first. And then the targets of their attack are listed to the right of the verses indication. So you can see uh, who instigated each round of hostilities. Of these five rounds of hostilities, two are worthy of mention in the context of today's discussion. The 1967 war was probably the most significant of all five of them. In that war, Israel attacked its three Arab neighbors of Egypt, Jordan, and Syria in turn. And in six days of hostilities, Israel amassed enormous territorial gains at the expense of its Arab neighbors. It occupied the Gaza Strip, as well as the Sinai Peninsula at the expense of Egypt. It occupied the West Bank at the expense of Jordan, and it occupied the Golan Heights at the expense of Syria. Six years later, Egypt and Israel, I'm sorry, Egypt and Syria got together to try to seek vengeance and recover their territory by invading Israel. Although they were eventually repulsed, the Egyptian and Syrian armies shed a lot of Israeli blood, uh, thus causing war fatigue on both sides of the conflict. What about the Palestinian people during this era of international warfare? Well, in the late 1940s and 1950s, Palestinians, generally speaking, were leaderless as a national entity. The Kingdom of Jordan presumed on many occasions to represent their interests in international discourse. Gradually, a Palestinian resistance movement began to take shape in the 1950s. Yasser Arafat played an instrumental role in forming the Palestine National Liberation Movement, also known as Fatah, a political party or movement founded in the late 1950s as well as the Palestine Liberation Organization, the PLO, which is a coalition of militias assembled in 1964. The PLO's express purpose was to use violence to destroy the state of Israel and liberate all of Palestine for its Palestinian people. The rise of Fatah and the PLO coincided with an escalation of violence between the two communities. Given power asymmetries, the PLO was unable to check or attack Israel by conventional military means. Thus, it used methods that met the U.S. definition of terrorism, including cross-border raids, targeted killings, and bombings of civilian and government targets alike, mostly inside Israel, but increasingly in other countries around the world. Israel responded to that those attacks with reprisals, with arrests and detentions, with border control measures, etc. Palestinian leaders based their armed resistance initially in the West Bank until Israel occupied it in 1967, and then in Jordan until King Hussein expelled them in 1970. Then they fought from Lebanon, which in the 1970s was in the throes of its own civil war, until Israel invaded that country in 1982 and forced the PLO to retreat to Tunisia. 
These roiling tensions erupted in a major round of civil unrest in 1987, when the Palestinian people launched a spontaneous, massive, popular uprising across the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. The Palestinians were frustrated by 20 years of occupation and the lack of any sign of progress toward political independence. So they took to the streets in acts of civil disobedience and rioting to protest Israeli suppression of their rights and interests. Israelis responded with military suppression of their demonstrations, with mass arrests, with demolitions of property. About 1,500 Palestinians and 500 Israelis were killed in the violence. Lasting about five years, the uprising became known as the Intifada, an Arabic phrase meaning to shake off. Part three, the peace process, especially the peace process under U.S. leadership. During this long era of Arab-Israeli interstate violence, the United States tended to side fully with Israel on questions of its national independence, its right to exist, and its assertive or aggressive defense of its interests. The Truman and Eisenhower administrations attempted even-handed comprehensive peace plans but they focused mostly on interstate relations, they neglected the Palestinians, and they failed to make much progress. The Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon administrations tended to bolster Israel pretty one-sidedly because in the height of the Cold War, the Arab powers seemed to be Soviet clients, whereas Israel appeared to be a reliable American ally. While well, U.S. officials became more assertively involved in peacemaking after that violent and bloody war of 1973, President Jimmy Carter took leadership of a mutual Egyptian-Israeli exploration of peace by leading a process that resulted in the Egyptian-Israeli Treaty of Peace in 1979, which included an Israeli phased withdrawal of the Sinai, although not Gaza, to Egypt. However, Carter's efforts to achieve settlements between Israel and other Arab states and between Israel and the Palestinian people came to naught. Israel and Egypt actually agreed to such deals in principle, but other Arab states and the PLO rejected those plans. Israel invested practically no effort in additional agreements, and Israel's invasion of Lebanon in 1982 scotched all such talk. The 1970s, I'm sorry, the 1990s witnessed a much more sweeping peace process, encouraged by the end of the Cold War and the stature the U.S. gained by winning the Gulf War. The Madrid summit of 1991 broke the taboo of Israeli and Arab statesmen engaging in face-to-face -face negotiations. As U.S. Secretary of State James Baker commented, after 43 years of bloody conflict, the ancient taboo against Arabs talking with Israelis had been dramatically consigned to the back benches of history. The Madrid summit of 1991 sparked a wave of diplomacy. President Clinton was able to arbitrate a Jordanian-Israeli treaty of peace in 1994. The Clinton administration also promoted mightily an Israeli-Syrian treaty. Although that effort fell short of an actual treaty, there has been relative stability 
meaning an absence of prolonged warfare between Israel and Syria ever since. There was also progress in the 1990s toward Israeli-Palestinian settlement. Yasser Arafat refashioned himself from militant to moderate statesman. He renounced terrorism. He formed the Palestine Authority as a democratic political institution, and he indicated that he would recognize and make peace with Israel. As these covers of Time magazine reveal, his reputation among Western observers clearly changed. Within Israel, the emergence of the so-called peace camp empowered the government to seek a more stable future through accommodation with the Palestinians. Israeli-Palestinian secret talks at Oslo, Norway, led to an accords calling for a two-state solution, two states living side by side in peace and harmony. Oslo inspired President Clinton to lead intensive Israeli-Palestinian negotiations on a two-state solution. Clinton brought Arafat and Israeli Prime Minister Rabin to Washington in 1993, where they pledged to make peace under a two-state solution. He held several follow-up meetings over the 1990s with leaders on both sides, culminating in a July 2000 summit meeting at Camp David with Arafat and Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak. It was clearly an, an era of historic handshakes and the peace process seemingly resolved many specific points of contention and encouraged people to imagine that a two-state solution was a very real possibility. But alas, the diplomacy stalled short of agreement. The peace process stalled for two broad and interconnected reasons. First, extremists in both camps who feared peace more than continued warfare deliberately sought to disrupt the peace process through acts of violence. On the Palestinian side, Hamas launched bus bombs and numerous other acts of violence to terrify and terrorize the Israeli people and undermine their willingness to make peace. Extremists also resisted peace from the Israeli side. For example, an Israeli settler walked into a mosque in Hebron in 1993 and shot to death dozens of Arab men and boys as they worshiped. Even more ominously, a religious extremist assassinated Prime Minister Rabin in late 1995 because he was considering yielding the West Bank to a Palestinian state. Second, in addition, there proved to be deep gaps in the negotiating positions on three crucial issues that had bedeviled peace plans over the decades. First, there was the question of land, where to draw the boundaries between Israel and the West Bank and Gaza, and more importantly, what to do about the large and growing presence of Israeli settlements in the West Bank, settlements portrayed in the image at the left. A second debilitating question was the matter of refugees, Palestinian refugees. Would the millions of Palestinians who had been displaced from their homes and their descendants be allowed to return to those homes? And if not, how would they be compensated? And where and how would they be settled permanently? The third difficult question was Jerusalem. Who would control the city considered holy and culturally powerful by both communities? Whose capital would be established there? Was there room in Jerusalem 
for two capitals. With the peace process deadlock to move on to part four, the Israeli-Palestinian situation quickly descended into violence in the early 2000s. Palestinian frustrations boiled over in a second popular uprising, the second Intifada of 2000 to 2005. This round of violence was more bitter, more violent, and more deadly than the first uprising, with about 3,000 Palestinians and 1,000 Israelis killed. Both communities drifted toward extremism in the 2000s, leaving the near-miss peace process of the 1990s on retreat in the rearview mirror. Among Palestinians, after Arafat's death in 2004, the Palestinian community split into two major factions, the moderate Mahmoud Abbas, who was elected president of the PA in 2005, continued to pledge peaceful intentions toward Israel and to engage in US-led negotiations on a possible two-state solution. The extremists rallied to Hamas and to continued armed resistance. Hamas secured control of the Palestine Authority's legislature in democratic elections in 2006. In 2007, Palestinians fought among themselves with Fatah prevailing in the West Bank and Hamas in Gaza. Fatah refrained from actively resisting Israel and also from making peace with Israel, while Hamas continued its war of resistance. Among Israelis, the country drifted to right-wing conservative orientation during the early 2000s. There was disillusionment among Israelis that the 1990s peace process had fallen short and that the Second Intifada had erupted. Israelis also reasoned that concessions they had made, such as withdrawing from southern Lebanon in 2000 and from Gaza in 2005, seemed to have led not to peace and stability, but instead to growing violence from those territories, orchestrated by Hezbollah and Hamas, respectively. Netanyahu returned as prime minister in 2009 and was re-elected in 2013 and 2015, and again eventually in 2022. For a while, Netanyahu talked to President Obama about peace terms, but then he grew resistant to making peace. By the early 2020s, Netanyahu formed the most religiously conservative government in Israel's history and promoted a policy of repression of Palestinian interests and rights and rapid Israeli settlement of the West Bank. Netanyahu also provoked widespread protests by liberal Israelis who opposed his concessions to the religious right, probably weakening Israel's defensive capabilities. In this context of growing extremism in both communities, border violence escalated in Israel's north and south. Along the Lebanon border, Hezbollah, reoccupied southern Lebanon after the Israeli withdrawal in 2000, and from there fired rockets and launched raids into northern Israel, and Israel retaliated. In July 2006, Hezbollah snatched two Israeli soldiers in northern Israel. The Israeli government launched, in response, a 34-day operation that killed some 1,200 Lebanese and displaced more than a million people at the loss of about 100 Israeli soldiers. In the South, in Israel's South, 
Gaza emerged as the headquarters for Hamas, which remained committed to violent resistance against Israel. And beginning in 2007, constant violence roiled along the Gaza border with occasional major outbursts listed here, the ones in bold font being the most significant militarily and in terms of their human costs. What about the U.S. peace process during this descent into Israeli-Palestinian violence? Well, the, um, in the early 2000s, President Bush and President Obama tried to continue the Oslo-based peace process by pursuing international negotiations aimed at a two-state solution. Both administrations floated plans that sought even-handed compromises on vital issues of land, refugees, and Jerusalem, but all such plans failed. Among the two pro protagonists, one or the other, and often both powers, refused to consider compromises or concessions because they seemed too risky. In essence, both Israel and the Palestinians calculated that they could best pursue their own national interests, security, political, financial, and cultural interests, by continuing to fight rather than to settle. As intifada and border wars roiled, U.S. leaders were largely reduced to securing ceasefires that restored the status quo, but did nothing to address the underlying issues. President Trump broke the long precedent of even-handedness in U.S. policy and sided completely with Israel on most of the significant issues. President Trump moved the U.S. Embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. He recognized Jerusalem as Israel's capital. He recognized Israeli sovereignty over the Golan Heights. He endorsed Prime Minister Netanyahu's aggressive settlement building on the West Bank, even though it reduced the prospect for a two-state solution. In all of these policies, President Trump broke decades of precedent of even-handedness in U.S. policy toward Israeli-Palestinian matters. President Trump also negotiated the Abraham Accords that helped win Israel regional legitimacy. And in July 2020, he floated a plan for Israeli-Palestinian peace that endorsed Israeli maximal demands and denied Palestinian aspirations. President Trump ardently supported Israel which probably had the effect of encouraging them in their tough approach and probably added to the growing conservatism among Israelis and the soaring fatalism among Palestinians. Upon taking office, President Biden indicated that he favored a two-state solution, but he initially avoided deep involvement in the Israeli-Palestinian situation. Given more pressing matters elsewhere, given the stubbornness on both sides of the dispute, and given the decline in relative U.S. global power. As President Biden commented in July of 2022, the ground is not ripe at the moment to restart negotiations. Biden seemed to limit his aspirations to containing the conflict and avoiding a cataclysm. And the events of October 7th showed the limits of such U.S. policy. 
part five of my overview is the attack of October 7th and after. October 7th in many ways is comparable to the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attacks on the United States. Like the 9-11 attacks, the Hamas raid into Israel on October 7th was striking in its scale, its audacity, its lethality, and its depravity. Like 9-11, 10-7 was a tactical surprise, but on a strategic level of analysis, it fit the trajectory of the recent past. Like 9-11 briefly united the American people and increased their ardor for war, 10-7 led to a unity government in Israel and mass patriotic determination to make someone pay. Like 9-11 galvanized anti-US extremists across the Middle East, 10-7 became a proud or at least justifiable accomplishment for supporters of Hamas across the region and beyond. Like 9-11 prompted the United States to invade Afghanistan in 2001 and Iraq in 2003, 10-7 prompted Israel to bomb Gaza heavily and to launch a grueling ground invasion. What will come to pass in Gaza is difficult to predict with confidence, although several circumstances render the overall situation gloomy. Israel is reeling in shock, horror, anger, and vengefulness. Given the deep political and cultural divisions that emerged among the Israeli people in recent years, the political stability of the country seems tenuous. The unity government forged by the national emergency of 10-7 is not guaranteed to survive once the crisis abates. Palestinian political stability has deteriorated. Fatah is led by the 87-year-old president who was last elected in 2005 to a four-year term. Hamas has seized the popular mandate despite, or perhaps because of, its relentless resistance and extreme methods against Israel. Israel seems determined to eradicate Hamas by the roots once and for all, yet that quest is fraught with difficulties. U.S. experiences in Vietnam and Afghanistan show that even long and costly commitments are not easy to win against determined, non-state, irregular military forces. Even if Hamas is destroyed, and that's a big if, there would remain the difficult problem of who would govern Gaza thereafter. Given Gaza's urban landscape, its compact size, its UN presence, and its dense population of non-combatants, Israel's military assault on Hamas has caused massive civilian casualties, earning Israel intense criticism from around the world. Across the region, the Hamas attack has reverberated. It encouraged government and settler violence against Palestinians in the West Bank, more than 100 of whom have been killed since 10-7. It stymied the expansion of the Abraham Accords that were reportedly on the verge of a Saudi-Israeli accommodation. It signaled the power of Iran, Hamas's main patron, to spread religious extremism. It attracted the support of Russia and the sympathy of China. Ominously, Hamas's attack provoked a war that threatened to escalate suddenly into major conflagration. From southern Lebanon, Hezbollah has lobbed rockets across the border 
and there are grounds for concern that Israel will decide to address the root of the Hamas problem by striking targets within Iran. If there's any ground for optimism or hopefulness, perhaps the highest ground is diplomacy, prospective diplomacy leading to a two-state solution. While such an outcome seems almost impossible right now, while Israeli tanks rumble into the heart of Gaza and Palestinian resistance continues, there are reasons to believe that it remains the only viable alternative to endless warfare. Two historic precedents give some reason to hope that diplomacy could yet succeed. The 1973 Arab-Israeli War, as I mentioned earlier, caused the deaths of thousands of soldiers, but also stimulated a peace process that resulted in the Egypt-Israel Peace Treaty of 1979. In addition, the Intifada of the late 1980s, although violent and deadly, was followed by the peace process of the 1990s. Getting to a two-state solution anytime soon would certainly not be easy. It would require the international community, probably led by the US and the UN, to organize a coalition of powers committed to promoting an equitable compromise settlement between Israel and Palestine and encouraging both sides to embrace it. It would require the support of Russia and China, both members of the UN Security Council, who presently are engaged in rivalries and indirect confrontations with the United States. Even more challenging, getting to a two-state solution would require the Israeli people and the Palestinian people, both almost certainly under new leadership, collectively to express their determination that they have tired of war and are ready to start a new day. The Israeli people and the Palestinian people would need to embrace the conclusion reached by Israeli Prime Minister Rabin in 1993. The time for peace has come, he declared. We, the soldiers who have returned from battles stained with blood, we who have seen our relatives and friends killed before our eyes, we who have come from a land where parents bury their children, we say today in a loud and clear voice, enough of blood and tears, enough. Thank you. Peter, thank you very much for that. A very informative uh, and fascinating uh, and really kind of full presentation. Um, we will take the time we have remaining to uh, to take questions uh, from folks who are in the audience. And so if you have questions, please uh, put them into the Q&A and uh, we'll get through as many as we can. Um, and we have a few that came in in advance uh, during registration. And so I'll sort of start there and uh, and then build out. What, one question, this is perhaps a big one, Peter, and I'm sorry to give you such a big one to start with, but uh, this is from a, uh, from a teacher um, who, uh, who writes, so as a person here, I'm, I'm quoting uh, him or her, uh, as a person responsible for teaching future teachers, uh, what is most important for educators to understand how to teach about this conflict, past and present, to humanize the experiences of both people's pain and focus on a more solution-oriented rhetoric? Thank you for that question. That's a, a great question and one that I have thought about a lot because I teach this issue to undergraduate and graduate students here at Ohio State on a regular basis. My recommendation would be to follow the precepts that were implied in the question, humanize 
both communities, try to understand both communities, try to understand their aspirations as well as their challenges, and um, in the most humane fashion possible, try to tease out the fairest and most peace-oriented orientation one can find. It's easy to be drawn into taking sides. Um, I personally aspire in teaching these materials to achieve complete objectivity, which might not be possible given our human condition, but I try nonetheless. By analogy, I sometimes think that um, I'm at a football game and there are two teams on the field in contest. I am not on those teams. I'm not a fan of those teams. And I'm not even the referee who might be changing, making a judgment call that affects the outcome of the contest. But rather, I'm up in the press box as a journalist reporting on the game to an audience overseas that knows nothing about the game. And my job is to capture the game and all of its complexity, including what the referees are doing as, um, as my mission. And that's what I try to convey to my students. Thank you for that. And, and we have a, a few questions that actually take us back in history to the, to the 19th century and then into the first half of the 20th century. So before, uh, before World War II and particularly during the British period, um, and I'll kind of give a couple of them together just now. So one um, one asks, um, how was it that uh, that fleeing European Jews originally identified Palestinian territory for their settlement? So, um, and the second uh, is uh, uh, asks if we should blame this on the British, um, and basically says the British created the mess in the Middle East many years ago with the Balfour Agreement. Uh, bribing the Arabs into a situation that has failed to create peace. What is your perspective on the Balfour, agree uh, Balfour Agreement uh, and how did it affect the region? Uh, two fine questions. Let me take the Balfour one second and then Nick, I might need you to refresh my memory on the first. Um, there's plenty of evidence that British diplomacy from the First World War era through the end of the mandate put Palestine on a road to embittered conflict for decades to come. During World War I, as a matter of wartime expediency, the British made three promises to uh, three made promises to three different communities in the Middle East. Um, those promises were not reconcilable, but they made them anyhow because they were um, under wartime emergency and they felt like they had to. They promised the Arab peoples that they would enjoy national sovereignty after the war. They promised the Jewish people that they would have a Jewish national home in Palestine after the war. And they promised themselves and the French that they would dominate the region as colonial powers working through the emergent League of Nations. That set the stage for decades of conflict that followed. And one can make the case that even now, more than 100 years after the end of World War I, those British decisions are still causing complications. Now, I would not oversell that point because um, British and other Western colonial powers created complications in many other areas of the world as well. Uh, but in other such cases, local powers were able to figure out how to stabilize and succeed and live in prosperous, peaceful times nonetheless. So yes, the British legacy is important, but something else has also happened to account for 
the evolution of the Arab-Israeli conflict as, as we have witnessed it. The first question on how um, European Jews got a toehold in Palestine. European Jews had always felt a cultural affinity for Palestine because it was the ancient homeland of the Jewish people as recorded in Jewish holy scriptures. Many believed on religious grounds that the land there was holy and had been promised to them by God and that they had been unjustly expelled by the Roman Empire uh, some two millennium before. And devout Jews and even cultural Jews would engage in a frequent toast of next year in Jerusalem as a way of affirming that they always had this constant affinity for the ancient homeland. In the 1800s, as nationalism swept Europe, Jewish people there became imbued with what was called Zionism, which was a form of Jewish nationalism. They began to dream of building a Jewish state somewhere. They were naturally attracted to the idea of Palestine. Uh, European Jews tended to be wealthy and educated, um, at least more so than local Middle Easterners, and they had thus had the means to explore moving into Palestine and purchasing land and beginning to establish settlements there. Palestine at the time was under the administrative control of the Ottoman Empire, which governed it on a decentralized basis and thus uh, created the opportunity for ambitious European Jews to move in purchase land, open businesses, build homes, and begin to build a sense of community. The Palestinian people were there. They were certainly present. However, they were very decentralized, and they thus didn't have the political or military infrastructure needed to govern the land in a way that would have made it resistant to that uh, Jewish settlement. Uh, let me jump us forward a little bit, because we have a few questions about just what might be possible for long-term peace in the region. And, and you talked a, a little bit about this in the presentation, but perhaps you could uh, you could talk a little bit further. I think that there's real interest in knowing, you know, is, is a two-state solution you know, possible? Is it possible if groups like Hamas remain? Uh, is it possible if Hamas is somehow taken out of power through, through the process that's ongoing at the moment? Uh, what might be the role for uh, in, uh, you know, other great powers uh, around the world or the UN in helping to foster that. Well, what is possible in that regard? Uh, and and is the two-state solution the only the only one that might be left for a peaceful uh, peaceful outcome? The two-state solution is not the only prospective solution leading to peace. Um, it's one of several, in my judgment, it's the one most likely to succeed. Now, that doesn't mean it'll be easy or simple. It's been tried now for going on 30 years and hasn't been achieved. And that legacy is certainly uh, relevant to keep in mind. Um, but I think it's better than the alternatives. And it's the one that the US and the international community should rally behind. The alternatives include a one state solution, which is somehow creating a single country of Israel, Palestine, that I'm not sure what you would call it. Um, you'd, you'd come up with some name that would give peaceful, democratic, equal rights to all of its inhabitants. Um, in an idealistic world, I can see the merits of that prospect, but in the real world, I think it, it poses more difficulties than a two-state solution does, simply because of the legacy of tensions and so forth. Um, it's my observation that the Jewish people of Israel 
want to have a country that's Jewish and democratic. I mean, that's fairly well known by everyone. And the best way for them to achieve that aspiration is to have a state of Israel that's distinct from a state of Palestine. Um, and I suspect that the thinking on the Palestinian side is similar. Another alternative, and the one that the Israeli government under Netanyahu seems to be intent on, is to have a solution that restores peace, and I'll put little quotation marks around that, through sheer Israeli dominance. Uh, that was the direction of Netanyahu's policy even before October 7th, and it seems to be especially his intention, at least as he expresses himself in press conferences these days, uh, now that he's at war in Gaza. He has indicated that his government's going to invade Gaza, utterly destroy Hamas, and remain in occupation and control of Gaza for the indefinite future. Um, that would be the culmination of an approach he took before 10-7, and that he did with the blessing of the United States government during the Trump administration of um, becoming the super dominant power, the only one that's left, completely vanquishing Palestinian uh, authority or any pretense to government and sort of controlling the Palestinian people. Now, from an Israeli point of view, that could be sort of an armed peace where the minority Palestinians are just brutally suppressed, but that doesn't really fit a uh, definition of peace uh, as it's understood by the rest of the world community. So I find that act, that prospect highly unattractive as well. What it would take to get to the two-state solution is heroic diplomacy. Um, it would certainly mean the downsizing of Hamas's terrorist legacy and its the, the violent depravity of its October 7th attack. It probably or at least likely would need to mean that Hamas is emasculated completely or put out of business completely. But it's also possible that as time passes, some role for a more neutral new leaf Hamas might yet be identified. And, and I say that thinking how Yasser Arafat went through that transition that I alluded to during my talk today. Uh, if Arafat could turn the corner from, you know, hated, scorned, terrorist thug, which is how he was seen by Israel in the West in the 1960s and 70s, if he could transition to statesman and turn the PLO into a democratic Palestine authority and be welcome to Camp David to shake hands with Israeli leaders and US leaders, uh, that it, that's happened before. So um, who's to say it's impossible that, that Hamas could go through some similar transition. Hamas after all does employ what the US government would call terrorism, violent terrorism. We all saw it on September 7th, it's utterly horrible. But Hamas also is a um, government authority that runs a health ministry and an education system and dispenses social welfare in the territory it occupies. So it does have administrative structure. If it could be separated from that violent terrorist legacy, it might yet find a place at the table. Again, that's not easy. Uh, that would not be easy to accomplish, but I'm not ready yet at this stage to say that it that it's impossible. I'm going to follow up on that and, and kind of flipping the story back to the U.S. I mean, can you talk a little bit about what what is the, I mean, from a real politique kind of perspective, what, what is the real benefit for the United States of, of a two-state solution of some kind of peace in that area? 
what is the downside for the U.S. geopolitically, economically, uh, uh, with ongoing tension and violence uh, in the region? The downside for the U.S. of the continuation of conflict is that it threatens to escalate into general regional conflict. Um, beyond the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, the U.S. is most concerned in the Middle East by Iran, which has been engaged in a low-scale warfare against the United States and vice versa for a couple of decades now. Um, Iran has been pursuing a nuclear bomb, which would give it um, enhanced lethality. Iran has been promoting anti-Western militias across the region in places like Lebanon and Iraq and Palestine and Yemen. Um, it has been attacking and undermining U.S. interests and U.S. allies across the region. And Iran has been backing both Hezbollah and Hamas. And as long as the tension within Palestine continues to roil, there's always the chance that it could expand suddenly and dramatically into some kind of a regional war. And especially if Iran should develop weapons of mass destruction, that kind of war could be catastrophic for the people of the region and for the stability of the international order. The U.S. also continues to rely or its allies rely on the natural resources of the Middle East, namely the oil, especially of the Arabian Peninsula. It, um, it, it identifies lines of communication, trade routes and communication routes across the region of value. There's a cultural poignancy here where the Middle East is the meeting point of Islam and Judaism and Christianity. And so on behalf of an aspiration for a general global tolerance and peace, stabilizing the Middle East seems prominent in the policy thinking of, of U.S. government leaders. A region of peace, of course, would mean that the U.S., um, could breathe a sigh of relief that some of its interests are no longer under day-by-day, week-by-week threat. It could also downsize its um, commitment to defending countries of the region and or pursuing peace. Uh, the U.S. government has spent billions of dollars over many decades, multiple billions of dollars over many decades, trying to promote peace, trying to secure the powers of the region that feel threatened by their neighbors. If that situation could be solved, then the U.S. could relinquish some responsibilities that have become fairly costly. Uh, we probably have time for a couple more questions. Um, let me take this one, uh, which uh, is sort of asks to kind of think about the the asymmetrical nature of the conflict, both today and 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 historically, um, and asks, you know, can we understand the violence of Palestinian militants in the context of anti-colonial? national liberationist ideologies? Uh, and is it the case that there is a right to use armed resistance against a colonial occupier, as many Palestinians seem to understand Israel? I, I Yes, I think so. I think the Palestinian resistance fits the mold, generally, of national resistance movements to um, what are defined as colonial or occupying powers, the Palestinian struggle against Israel in many ways, not exclusively, but in many ways resembles, say, the um, the insurrection against U.S. forces in Iraq or the resistance against U.S. forces in Afghanistan or from past generations in, in Vietnam. 
Now, there are key differences in that uh, the resistance of Palestinians has gone into Israel proper on a scale that Vietnamese, Afghan, and Iraqi resistance never really found its way onto U.S. soil. Um, but if one follows the contours of international law as manifest in UN resolutions going back to 1948, one would observe that the West Bank and Gaza are still occupied territories and the, uh, under international law that has a certain meaning. Um, Israel's supposed to relinquish control of them eventually. It's not supposed to colonize them permanently. It's not supposed to build housing settlements on them. It, it does that. It's not supposed to force the indigenous peoples off those lands. Well, it has done that in the past, and it's doing that um, even on a more pronounced basis right now, more so since 10-7 than in the corresponding time before 10-7. So as Palestinians resist, they uh, portray their resistance as authentic and legitimate under international conventions pertaining to resistance to occupation forces. And there are some parallels, although again, it's not uh, a slam dunk, complete and total parallel to other resistance movements. The Palestinians, given the asymmetry of power, have decided uh, clearly by their behavior that they cannot engage in um, above board traditional conventional military activities. Uh, they are so um, comparatively impotent to Israeli forces that if they fielded a traditional army and sent it out into battle against the Israeli army, if they should do that, they would lose calamitously and quickly. And so they've had to rely on irregular methods, um, suicide bombs, cross-border raids, random rocket assaults, etc., uh, all such techniques meet the U.S. government definition for terrorism, which, of course, the U.S. government wrote to make it impossible for the U.S. government to ever engage in terrorism and made it easy for many of what the U.S. considered its adversaries to engage in terrorism. Um, Palestinian defenders would say, you know, they would counter argument that one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter, to use a phrase that Arafat himself uh, once used um, back in the 80s. Um, they think that kind of resistance is justified because they have been so suppressed that it's the, the best means they can come up with, even though it, it breaks um, what Western powers define as the rules of war. Let me sneak in one more question, uh, maybe in just a in a, a speed answer about a minute or that sort of thing. But sadly, it's a well, it's a big question uh, for a short uh, period of time. But uh, I, I guess to to what degree do you see uh, religious considerations as being uh, you know, formative here in in uh, in this conflict as opposed to geopolitical, economic, or you know, or any others? And are there any hopes, re, uh, religious-based hopes, for uh, a, a peaceful settlement, uh, particularly given that there are a lot that uh, the Judaism and Islam share in terms of uh, of, uh, of religious ideas? Um, so those kind of two parts of, uh, of that religious question. 
Yeah, that's a very complicated question. I'll try to give you a very quick answer. I think there are multiple variants, very uh, multiple variants behind the policies of both communities, geopolitics, economics, culture and history, et cetera. It's also clear to me that religion is also a factor that needs to be analyzed. And I think that religion in both communities cuts both ways, um, meaning that in both communities, for some people, religion impels them to fight harder and more violently. But at the same time, for other members of the same community, their religious values inspire them to dream of an era of peace. Um, that sounds complicated and contradictory, but I would submit that that's part of the human condition. And I think that if we Americans, assuming that you know that's a safe thing to say to an audience uh, that I can't see, uh, if we think about our own historical experience and our own contemporary policies, we see that same tension where the same religion can inspire some of us toward violence and others of us toward peace. Um, so I, I, I'm not surprised actually to note that tendency among the Israelis and the Palestinians as well. Peter, thank you very much. Uh, and thank all of you uh, in, the, in our audience for joining us today. Um, and for your excellent questions. I'm very grateful to Peter Hahn for sharing his expertise and his insight uh, about uh, this extraordinarily important uh, set of events that we're all living through together. Uh, please join me in giving him a virtual uh, round of applause. Um, thank you, thank you. If you'd like to know more, Peter Hahn has published, as I mentioned at the outset, multiple books uh, and articles uh, on this topic. Uh, and if you happen to be in the Columbus, Ohio area, he'll be teaching a, a course on U.S. diplomacy uh, in the Middle East where you can really delve in uh, ever more deeply into this. Uh, I'd like to thank uh, the College of Arts and Sciences, the Department of History, the Goldberg Center, and Origins, Current Events, and Historical Perspective uh, for their support. Thank you again for coming out today. Stay safe and healthy. Uh, we'll see you next time. And goodbye. <laughs>